Hello, everybody, and welcome to Keep 'em Flying, a Serenity podcast in which we're gonna, in which we're going to review every movie made from Firefly. Both, one of it, all one of it. I'm Paul Spataro. I am joined by B- Shepherd William Robinson. Serenity now! <laughs> you know that doesn't work, right? You just bottle up the uh, frustration, and eventually it all has to come out, right? When are we have? When are we gonna do the the Goram feats of strength? <laughs> I got a lot of issues with you guys. Along with us is our ever-present cohort, Mr. Andrew Leyland. We have done the mighty, and that makes us impossible. Oh, wait. (laughs) Flip that. (laughs) Reverse that. And for a return engagement, we've brought along our scientific consultant, W. Blaine Dowler. Hello, thanks for having me on this one. Uh, I seem to remember you begging. (laughs) Please let me be on the Serenity podcast. Well, maybe it wasn't quite that dramatic, but thanks for coming along, Lane. It's we we always appreciate your presence. As we don't understand the most simple scientific moments, we'll ask you. Hey, speak for yourself. What for for appreciating having him here, or for not understanding? Uh, both. <laughs> yeah, well, if if we're gonna, you know, if we're gonna have you point out everything you don't understand, it's just gonna be a long show. Whoa, 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 whoa. N- never yes. mind. That's a different show. We'll get into that. <laughs> you know, it would have been funnier if you were like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't get it. What are you saying? <laughs> so we, we have made our way through the entire series, the 14 episodes of Serenity, of Serenity, of, of Firefly. And now we're back for one final review program to go over Serenity, the... 2005 movie which theoretically wraps up a lot of the storylines from Firefly now before we get into the plot of Serenity does anybody have any Firefly news Uh, it's still cancelled there might maybe be a game (laughs) (laughs) so exactly the same news that we've had in every episode of the show so far well, it, yeah, it, I think it's licensed by the legendary card game, and that's out and has been out for a while, but I've only recently learned about it. haven't picked it up right. yet. Hmm. I've been happy with what Legendary's done with the Marvel license, so it's definitely on the two-fine list. But I, I think the uh, the chances of any type of reunion at this point, as we've kind of concluded going along this, is is extremely slim. And just looking, I have the Wikipedia page for the movie open... Uh, and if you can believe the numbers there, which are usually from Box Office Mojo and are usually fairly reliable, uh, the budget is listed as $39 million, and the box office is listed as somewhere between 38.9 and $40.1 million. So yeah. this was not a profitable movie for them, which I would think makes it all the more unlikely that they're going to ever go for a second go-round on that. Well, it was yeah. not profitable in theaters, but Universal expected that going in. Um, but there's also, I have a theory about this. There was that thing that Universal did a lot of free screenings to drum up interest, and the fans went to the free screenings and then didn't pay to go and see the film 
because of certain uh, events that happen in the film. And I think that ultimately damaged the box office. Well, well keep in mind this was oh, a September release. Um, hmm. So this is the, and I used to work at a movie theater, so I've seen some of the internals with how the studios do it. When Fox first put this out and then released it on DVD, the DVD sales were huge. And this was early in the DVD era. The first series ever to be released in complete season sets was The X-Files in 1999. The first one to come out on in a season set before it hit syndication was 24. And that was because that premiered a few weeks after the 9-11 attack. And Fox figured a year later they draw audiences or audience members who just weren't ready to watch a show about terrorism in October of 2001. And it mm-hmm. did really well. So Firefly and... Family Guy were the two shows that sold so well that they deserved revivals. Fox put Fire or put Family Guy back on the air, but they said no to a Firefly movie. When Universal agreed to make the Firefly movie, they did so and agreed to a twenty-eight million production budget and thirty-nine million, including the eleven million that they spent on advertising. When the record for a September release at the box office to that point was twenty-two million, so they went into this betting on DVD sales and right. eventually Blu-ray sales to make back their money. So they didn't yeah. look to this for being profitable in theaters. It's I don't know what any of the uh, what any of the home video sales numbers are on it, but it doesn't seem to me just just from a buzz point of view it doesn't seem to me that it was a huge success in that regard. Uh, it wasn't huge, but it must have been profitable because we've this is one of those DVDs that originally came out in like the, the $25 to $30 range with all the special features, and now it's coming out on $8 Blu-rays with those special features intact, which means they've recouped the production cost of making the bonus features, so they're pressing new discs that are basically pure profit because it's now manufacturing and residuals. So, oh, that's an interesting perspective on it. Yeah. So I, I hadn't considered that... Uh... That when when they get to the eight dollar, it means pure profit. I always thought the eight dollar meant we're not going to sell it if we charge more, so we'll get it out there at this price. Yeah, they're the the ones like Gem and the Holograms movie. You're never going to see in the eight dollar bins because they're not going to be making more of those. <laughs> but that's full price only. Right. So this has made. So it there goes the chances of Gem and the Holograms making its way onto my Blu-ray shelf. <laughs> You mean we're not doing a gem and the holograms podcast? No, oh, I didn't say that. Uh, oh, one based on a TV series. <laughs> okay, and then, Blaine. And then we'll end it with the movie. <laughs> da, 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 we got our next project. Yeah, live, folks. Paul and so, the holograms. That could be us. We could be the holograms. <laughs> I take up a lot of energy for a hologram. <laughs> and I'm practically transparent, so. My, so my screen, my screen can't handle Bill in 1080p. <laughs> Does that mean I'm going to have to draw an H on my forehead and you know yes! start calling you guys snakeheads? Yes, you could be Arnold Rimmer. Would it be a shiny I, button? How many buttons are we talking about? Can I be Ace Rimmer? You can be Ace Rimmer. I I'll be Lister. I, that makes Paul the cat. <laughs> Paul's going, what are you guys talking about? I, I, I was going to say, I don't even know what that means, but I'll be the cat. That's fine. <laughs> Yeah, the cat's cool. You you could you could totally be the cat. The cat's okay. the best dressed one, and he's got little tiny fangs, and he's like, ow. 
kind of sounds like me anyway, except for the he's best. He's a cat. Ball. He's he's a he is a cat that has turned into a humanoid life form over millennia. Well, many millennia, millions of years of. What's the word I'm looking for, fellas? Because evolution, evolution, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's that e word that. It, it <laughs> so for the listeners who are just as lost as Paul, check out Red Dwarf. Although, to be perfectly frank, watch the pilot, then skip to series three. Oh come on! Season two's awesome. Okay. Season two is a great improvement over season one. Season one yeah, can, makes me surprised there's a series two. It was only because they'd already commissioned a series two. I believe that, but yeah, series two is when they started to to find their groove, and then series three is when they start firing on all cylinders. It's well, for the rest of this conversation, you will have to tune into Small Red Thing, our Red Dwarf podcast. Small Red Thing. Uh, I'm, you know what? I'm going to just steer this back <laughs> without giving away anybody's thoughts as to what you thought of Serenity. Now, I saw it four days ago for the first time. <laughs> when did everybody else see it? I saw it in theatres. I saw it opening night. Me and Angela ditched whatever plans we'd had, which in my case was a, a night school class to do my mathematics reset because I am shockingly awesome at maths. And part of my job was I have to have a grade B or above in maths, English, a science and my specialist subject that I teach. Her. And I didn't have that in maths because I suck at it. So I was resitting my maths and I blew my maths class off that night to go and watch Serenity. Okay, and Dr. I don't encourage that at home, children. <laughs> Stay in school. Uh, I the first time I saw it was years ago. I don't remember the exact date, but I had purchased it um, on DVD and immediately came home and watched it. Uh, and when well, I won't say how I felt. We'll save that. But but yeah, it's been quite a few years. And then uh, I rewatched it recently when we uh a few months maybe about two months ago when i burned through and watched the rest of the series and then i'm like screw it i'm going ah when it was still up right before it went off of netflix was when i watched it and then i watched it twice last night well one in like a half times because josh whedon's commentary put me to sleep and then i watched it then i woke up at like they really should have gotten joss whedon to do it instead god damn it damn yes because joss whedon's an interesting guy josh not so much Stop it! <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Finish your thought. It's not my fault. Yeah, it is my fault. You got to wonder: Do I do it on purpose? Do I do it subconsciously for a bit, or do I plan it? You'll never know. We will not know. I, I have my suspicions. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just an idiot. So, and then I uh, I got up at two in the morning and I watched it again. So, I got to give you the dedication. Yeah. I just like the movie. How about I, you, Blaine? I was there opening night. I was actually started with Firefly the night of broadcast. I watched every episode when it came out in the Canadian affiliates, so I didn't even have to suffer through the stuff that was preempted for baseball and only see part of the episode. I saw uh, all episodes that Fox aired in the order Fox did it, and then the Sci our Space Channel here in Canada picked up the license and aired all 14 in the proper order before it came out on DVD, and so I watched them on space, then watched it on DVD again, and I was there opening night for the theatrical release because there were no advanced screenings in my area. Well, the two of you that saw it theatrically, do you believe that there's a significant difference in this particular one, seeing it on a big screen as opposed to seeing it in the more intimate version at home? 
I don't think so. I don't think this is like Star Trek The Motion Picture, where whatever you think of that movie, it really does benefit from being seen in widescreen or, or on a cinema screen. Uh, this one's more emotional and more gut-wrenching, and there are certain bits of it that are still that at home, even though when I watched it last night, this was must have been the seventh or eighth time I've watched it all the way through, and I've seen bits of it here, here and there, because this was one of ITV4's um, roundtable movies for a bit, that's a cable channel that buys movies and then just owes them constantly. Like Escape from New York was another one. So you'd catch bits of it and I would always leave it on. Uh, but the, the bit that we're talking about is still <gasps> when it happens. And that happened in the cinema and it happened at home and it happens every time you watch it. So I, I don't think it benefits greatly from being a cinema experience. Although I do think Whedon changed the tone of the piece to make it work as a film. I definitely think there's a change in the tone. And just to give a little bit of my perspective, I guess, without giving away my review just yet, uh, I'm a mark for characters that I love. Uh, you know, you, you have people out there, and Andy, I think you're a little bit more in this group where you can say, that story is complete, I don't need any more. Mm. Whereas if I really like a character, I don't care how contrived it is when they revive them. I'm okay with it because I want more. I'm greedy when it comes to that. If I like characters, I just want more, more, more. So, you know, when, when they come out with something like this on a, on, a, on a series that, you know, clearly I'm totally on board for, I'm, I'm all in. Now, if they decide to make a second movie, I'm in. If they make a third movie, I'm in. Even, you know, even if it starts to get more contrived, that doesn't mean my review of the movies will always be positive. But pretty much I'll always give it a shot. Mm -hmm. So that's the way I am. So I, I think when it comes to me watching spinoffs or sequels to stuff that I enjoy, you already kind of have a leg up with me. Now, just to, to, to give just to pull the curtain back slightly, uh, I did ask my son who watched it with me. For the first time, he saw it also. I asked him if he wanted to come on with us today. And if we wanted to get him on now, I would have to uh, take the microphone into his room so you could hear him snoring. <laughs> so there, there was a moment, probably the same moment you were just talking about, Andy, that upset him greatly. Mm-hmm. And it really did have a negative impact on his viewing of the movie. Yeah, well, my understanding is that you guys aren't terribly familiar with Joss Whedon's work before this. Like, you know Buffy and Angel exist, but didn't watch and follow them. Is that correct? No, that I, is correct. I, I but I do know that Joss Whedon's uh, MO is to, hey, you know, don't think anybody's safe. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I, I knew Andy was familiar with it, but I meant like... Yeah, I've, I've, I've um, seen... Oh, yeah. yeah, well, you know that I'm familiar with them too. So. Well, I learned yeah. that in after I saw the Avengers movie and uh, when Coulson got it and everybody says, oh, yeah, typical Joss Whedon. Except for Bill, who said, oh, yeah, typical Josh Whedon. <laughs> Are they like the Wachowskis? Yeah. Are they? Yeah, the Joss and Joss work together on these things. Oh, okay. I get confused for a second there myself. Yes, they, they, they'll, I think they might be conjoined. <laughs> like to the same person? Almost. Yeah. Practically the same person. They share, yeah, they, yeah never mind, whatever, never mind. Yeah. Well, Joss and Zach did collaborate on uh, Serenity the Shepherd's Tale, the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. But, yeah, it's it, as far as 
the theater experience. Um, I would agree with Andy that the movie itself is more about characters and less about spectacle. So watching it alone in the theater is not much different from watching it alone at home. I did enjoy watching it opening night in the theater because when you're watching it with a crowd of brown coats, and by that I mean about 20% of the audience were wearing long brown coats when they saw the film, that is a bit of a different experience, which is why I still go to theaters today, even though I've got a 108-inch screen at home. You know, 108-inch, wow. Yeah, so with some, with some movies, it's just nice to see it in a crowd of fellow fans. So seeing oh, that, absolutely. the Star Trek, seeing that opening night, uh, the difference between home and theater is not so much the spectacle of what you see on screen as it would be with, you know, a James Cameron movie. Or, I don't know, James Cameron, I find, see it on the big screen or not at all, because he's largely about the spectacle. Um, yeah, this, I, I, you can enjoy well, the Well, I, I wouldn't go with as not, as, not at all. I, I would disagree with you on that, but... Movies of that nature, I do prefer to see at least for the first time on the big screen. A movie like, say, for example, Terminator 2, which would probably be my favorite James Cameron movie. Uh, I've viewed that many times on the smaller screen, and it's fine. I still enjoy it very much. But having seen it the first time on the big screen was kind of a necessity for me. Yeah, and that's, I mean... Not to get into Is It Jaws territory, but that's the only James Cameron movie I've ever deliberately gone back and rewatched multiple times. Well, two more than one, but the Terminator movies are the only ones I've gone back and watched again. I would I would put Aliens at that level as well, and and from not from the spectacle point of view, but I would also put True Lies. Okay. Yeah, because mm. True Lies really does work with an audience. Yeah, it does. True Lies is fun, but. Anyway, talking a little bit about Serenity now. Serenity now. <laughs> the movie was released on September 30th, 2005. It does list a date of August 22nd, 2005. That's probably the limited premiere release, I would guess. Or maybe an overseas Edinburgh, Edinburgh International Film Festival release. Okay, so Edinburgh. That's like right around the corner from you, Andy. It's yeah. totally just right around the corner from me, yeah. Compared to us, it is. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, the, the advanced screenings actually started in April of that year. That's when the spoilers started coming out. And Universal has... They started saying in August that they regretted deciding it was a September release, which they did because they figured, you know, it's kick it off like a new season of the TV series with the TV origins. They regretted not releasing it in July because that July in theaters was lackluster and the word of mouth and the response they're getting from fans told them it would have been a successful July tent poll, which is something that Universal doesn't typically do. Universal tends to lean towards uh, lower budget quantity releases, you know, maybe a little more character focus. Uh, they ask for a lower cut of the box office take and then plan to recoup the, the costs on video. That's a universal strategy that Fox and Disney and Warner Brothers don't employ. Fox, Disney, and Warner need to make their money back in theaters. If they don't, that's when you get the DVD releases that are still the full price but don't have any bonus features. And that's their only release. So I'm just looking at the, uh, the notes on Wikipedia on this, and it says it was aired after 11 of its 14 episodes had aired. 
So the other three episodes had not been seen by you guys at that point? No. Uh, over here, all of them got shown on Sky One. So we got the episodes that you didn't get. Yeah, and I had seen them in Canada, and of course the DVD release was out. So a lot of the fans Oh, it was out at that all. point, okay. Yeah, they were a bit on um, Sci-Fi as well, weren't they? Sci-Fi heard them all. By 2005? I think so, because I think it's the, the reruns and DVD sales that prompted Universal to go, yeah, we could probably invest in this. Oh, okay. See, I'm, I'm, I, I was, I'm definitely very late onto the, onto the ship on this one, but uh, not just in watching it. I really didn't even, I wasn't even aware of the, uh, the furor over it at, until sometime afterwards. Mm. Anyway, the plot goes something like this: In the 26th century, humanity has left an overpopulated Earth to colonize a new solar system. Central planets formed the Alliance and won a war against the outer planet Independence, those refusing to join the Alliance. River Tam is coercively conditioned by Alliance scientists into a psychic assassin. She is rescued by her brother Simon. During her training, River inadvertently reads the minds of several officers and learns top government secrets. Consequently, a top Alliance agent, known only as the Operative, is tasked with recapturing her. The siblings have found refuge aboard the transport ship Serenity with Captain Malcolm Mal Reynolds, first mate Zoe Washburn, pilot Hoban Walsh Washburn, mercenary Jane Cobb, and mechanic Kaylee Fry. Despite Simon's objections, Mal brings River on a bank robbery where they are attacked by savage and cannibalistic reavers. They escape, but Simon decides he and River will leave Serenity at the next port. Once there, however, a television commercial causes River to attack numerous bar patrons, and Mal takes the siblings back aboard the ship. The crew contacts reclusive hacker Mr. Universe, who discovers a subliminal message designed to trigger River's mental conditioning. He notes River whispered Miranda before attacking and warns that someone else saw the footage. Mal is invited to visit Inara Sarah, a former Serenity occupant. Despite knowing she is held hostage as a trap, Mal goes to rescue her. The operative confronts Mal, promising to let him go free if he turns over River. Mal refuses and escapes with Inara. River reveals that Miranda is a planet located beyond a region of space swarming with Reavers. The crew flies to the planet Haven to ponder their next move. They find Haven devastated and their old friend Shepard Book mortally wounded. The operative claims responsibility for the killings. He promises to keep pursuing them and killing anyone who assists them until he captures River. Despite the crew's objections, Mal disguises Serenity as a Reaver ship and travels to Miranda. On the planet, the crew finds all its colonists dead and a recording by the last surviving member of an Alliance survey team. She explains that an experimental chemical designed to suppress aggression was added into Miranda's air. Most residents became so docile, they stopped performing all activities of daily living and allowed themselves to die. A small portion of the population had the opposite reaction and became exceedingly aggressive and violent, turning into reavers. Mr. Universe agrees to broadcast the recording, luring the crew to the operative. However, the operative mortally wounds him, destroying his transmitting equipment, and prepares an ambush. 
Though Mal suspects a trap, he must deliver broadcast the recording. On the way, they provoke the Reaver fleet into pursuing them. While the Reaver fleet clashes with the waiting Alliance fleet, Serenity crash lands near the broadcast tower. Walsh is killed by Reavers shortly after. The crew makes a last stand against the Reavers to buy Mal time to broadcast the recording. Through a message recorded by Mr. Universe before his death, Mal learns of a backup transmitter. Sustaining heavy injuries, the crew retreats behind a set of blast doors that fail to properly close. A Reaver shoots through the opening and severely wounds Simon, prompting River to dive through the doors and close them as the Reavers drag her away. At the backup transmitter, Mal incapacitates the operative and forces him to watch the broadcast recording. Mal returns to the crew and the blast doors open to reveal that River has killed all the Reavers. Alliance troops reach the group, but the operative orders them to stand down. The operative provides medical aid and resources to repair Serenity. The operative tells Mal the broadcast has weakened the Alliance government. While he will try to convince the Parliament that River and Simon are no longer threats, he cannot guarantee the Alliance will end their pursuit. Serenity takes off with River as Mal's co-pilot. the end of all of our Firefly viewing for the rest of time. And I'm sad. <laughs> so, what did we think of this? Uh, I walked away with mixed feelings. I wanted to be I wanted to be totally pumped up by it. And I can't say that I was. I enjoyed a lot of it I thought it was a little uneven in the use of the cast. I thought Joss Whedon did not make the best use of his ensemble. I thought he he absolutely wasted Shepard Book. He didn't, you know, he, I mean, he, ba- he was barely a cameo in the movie. Uh, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of what his backstory was worked into this. Uh, he he really kind of wasted Inara as well. Everybody else kind of had their moments. I mean, Jane was small, but Jane was always small in his moments for the most part. Uh, and then the death of Wash was kind of kind of a, a kidney punch, to be honest with you. It, 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 it kind of put a damper on the end of the movie for me. I think I might have been better or more receptive to this if I had seen it more along the way you guys did and had more of a gap waiting for this to come. I think having it so soon after the series maybe lessened its impact. So overall, I did enjoy it. Overall, I do plan to see it again. But it was not the tremendous experience that I was hoping for. I definitely recommend seeing it again because I do find, while I enjoyed it opening night, I do find it's better on repeated viewings just because there were enough dangling plot threads from the series 
that you could not effectively deal with them all in the film. And walking out of it the first time, I was kind of... The, the plot threads I most wanted to see them pick up were not the ones that they chose to pick up in this movie. So going back to it a second time, knowing what they covered, I found I enjoyed it a lot more. Because it just... My issue with it the first time is really I had... The expectations I had for it didn't match the movie that they chose to make, and that's my fault and not the filmmaker's fault. Well, one of the things when you talk about the expectations you had, uh, I think it was Andy mentioned earlier that Whedon, for cinematic purposes, changed the tone. And I saw that, and I thought the tone was less lighthearted than the series was. Now, I understand they were hitting on some you know, higher-end uh, concepts and, and things that were going on with this group. But I didn't feel the sense of, for lack of a better word, the sense of whimsy that I did get occasionally with the TV series. That We didn't have the moments like, you know, Jane's hat. You know, there, there wasn't really that in this movie. And I thought there could have been a little bit more of that. And I think it would have just made it feel more like the TV show, more like an extension of that. And it would have made for just a happier experience, even with the, you know, I got to kill off a couple of people thing. I don't know if that, if, if anybody else had that same kind of sensation as they were watching it, but I, I, I could have used for just a few more lighthearted moments in this. I think if it's following on from the series, it's clear that some amount of time has passed. Inara being gone has taken its toll on Mal. So Mal isn't quite as... I mean, he was never, you know, yeah, he wasn't, he was never lighthearted in the series, but he, but Inara was there and she not being there has made him much harder and colder. And I think that carries over to the film because really Firefly is Mal's story and everyone else is just in orbit around him. And in the film, he's harder and colder and not as funny. So the film is harder and colder, but there is some, there's still some laugh out lines in it there is still some genuinely funny lines but the tone of this is exactly like you just said Paul it's very different to the tone of the series and Whedon I think it may be on that Wikipedia thing or it may have been a panel at Comic-Con Whedon said he had to write I think it was two or three drafts of this before he got the series out of the way and then it started to become a film um, with regards to, to Shepard book I think Ron Glass was filming something else. So they only had him for a certain amount of days. So they couldn't have him on the ship all the time. So they just had to cut him down. I don't agree with you that his death is throwaway. Shepard Buck's death propels the rest of the film in that it, it gives Mally's heroes resolve moment, like the moment in Jaws where Roy Schneider looks across to the sea and knows what he's got to do the hero moment. But more importantly, it sets Jane on that same path, which I think is the biggest character development of the film. Throughout the entire series, Jane has no interest in anybody but himself. And Shepard Book's death puts him on a different path. And that builds really on the series in the, a couple of the times when we've talked about the episodes, we've talked about how we purred the characters off in ways that you may not have expected. And one of the most interesting relationships was Jane and Book. Mm -hmm. 
and I I think Buck's death is really important for the end of the movie. But there's also, I mean, he spells it out for you in the first scene when Zoe says to that guy in the bank, you know, the definition of a hero, someone who gets other people killed. And it's set up there that somebody's going to die. And Buck's death is Mal's fault. Or certainly that's how Mal sees it. And he's the hero in speech marks that got his friend killed. And that propels the second half of the movie into making them big damn heroes when the series was about just surviving. And that's the main difference between the film and the show, I think. I I don't argue with you that the reason for their existence changes with that. And I don't argue with you that Shepard's Shepherd Book's death is a motivating factor in it. Those we don't disagree on that at all. Uh, but I do still stand by my thoughts that I was even with all of that, I would have liked for the tone to just be somewhat closer to the TV show. And I still feel that not that his death was meaningless, but but that his death could have been more more meaningfully presented to the audience mm. well, I, think I think it just it just it was just kind of there all of a sudden as, instead as of a, having giving him a hero's moment or giving him at least a dramatic moment do you think it's because as a standalone movie you don't really get the relationship between mal and book as well as you do if you've watched the 15 episodes of the show well i think that's part of it i think you you don't get any sense of that relationship in the movie and and uh, yeah, obviously we saw the show, so we know what the relationship is, you know, to as much as they showed of it in, over the course of the fifteen, fourteen episodes. But uh, I just feel as if, you know, you say he, you know, maybe scheduling wise he was doing something else and wasn't available. But I just feel like you know you, you still could have come up with something just a little bit more, with a little bit more meat on the bones as far as how he died. So. Um... Bill, you said that when you first saw this, you saw this on DVD, right? Yes. So did you see the series before you saw the movie then, or was your movie the first introduction? Oh, no, no. I had I had seen the series when it was being broadcast on Fox, okay. and then later in reruns, and then later on DVD again. So, yeah, I, I, I had been familiar. I, I think the character of the operative kind of makes the – sets the darker tone to the movie as well. Because also one thing that's not mentioned in the synopsis is that not only does Shepard Book and his community get wiped out, but the operative goes out and takes out any other group that is given Serenity and Mal safe harbor. And it's in the scene when he's standing on the bridge and he's looking at different cameras of each of the places where they have gone and visited and you can see it's burnt out or people have died. Um, and then the operative comes on and, you know, says, you know, if your quarry goes to ground, give him no safe Harbor. And it's that also with, you know, book telling him to, uh, you know, as he dies, I don't care what you believe, just believe it. That I think is what propels Mal into being, being the hero. I've brought everything down. No, you did. I think you, you ruined it all, Bill. <laughs> Damn you, Robinson. 
Uh, I think the thing with Serenity is the tone of the piece has essentially set the tone of this episode. It is a lot darker than the show. It isn't as funny. The fact that it's a film means that Whedon has to pick who his central character is going to be. And so by default, it ends up being Mal. And so the rest of them kind of get short shrift. And I think the only other one who comes out of this, other than River, really, is Zoe. Mm -hmm. Zoe has not a lot to do, but what she has to do is memorable. And I don't know what it was, but I actually thought Gina Torres was inordinately attractive in this one. I don't know whether it was the lighting because it was all the director of photography or I don't know what she'd been doing in the interim. Maybe she's been drinking a lot of water, but her skin is just glowing in this. So I'm going to gush over her for a bit. Well, just to just to take it to the cinematic level, something we don't normally talk about. I did think watching it that the cinematography in this movie was outstanding. The cinematography and the name escapes me, but is by the guy who normally works with Clint Eastwood. That's interesting. Let's see if he's listed here. Jack Green. That's him. It's something I know from interviews with Clint Eastwood. It is actually something that he always treated as very, very significant. You know, just the general, the look, the, the tone, the lighting, you know, all of that. You know, it's, it's one of the things that, that he focuses on in these movies. He doesn't just leave it to people to do. So obviously if he has this guy as a regular, which I, I'm not familiar with him in particular, but if, if this is his regular cinematographer, it's somebody who he must trust for something that he considers to be very, very important. It's not just something he delegates, mm. you know, or it's not something he delegates lightly. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, that that falls into line logically. And, and watching it, you know, I did think you could see a clear, clear difference between the cinematography and this and the TV show, which which is kind of strange because sometimes the cinematography in this seemed much brighter than what we got in the TV show, even though the tone of the movie was much darker. Yeah, well, the lighting's a lot darker as well, isn't it? The The lighting of the sets. I mean, I don't know. Are these the same sets, or did they have to rebuild them all? They, they, they had, had to, to rebuild them. them. Right. Yeah, they were. They were. There was bits and pieces left over, but they had to go to actually to the DVD um, to get references and rebuild them over. I think like fourteen weeks. Yeah, it was a, a combination of that and the fact that Nathan Fillion was so excited about the TV series when he first got hired for it that he had taken photos of all the production blueprints. So he brought those photos in to help them get everything back together uh, to the point that some of the props are labeled like reusable do not destroy <laughs> as sort of an in joke because they had to rebuild all the sets right but yeah it is darker lighting and that's something that they found they have to do moving from tv to films that's actually why they destroyed the enterprise d in star trek generations spoilers because <laughs> they found that just the, the regular enterprise was far too bright the way it was lit on TV to be used in the average theater. Right. right. In, in the cinema, the room just glowed. And that's why all of a sudden, you know, the lights are turned down in the D. That's why you can see LeVar Burton's eyes through the banana comb visor that he had. It's because the cinemas glowed and then they ended up blowing it up so they can just make them a darker ship for the next one. All right. Okay. Cause I, I did wonder whether they'd, they'd stored the sets or something. Cause they do a good job of replicating them. I didn't okay. notice any obvious flaws. 
I, w- I want to discuss the elephant in the room with you guys. Okay. Other than for shock value. The dinosaur in the room? Was there truly, <laughs> yes. Was there truly a reason to kill off Wash? Yes. Mm-hmm. Please, yes. please explain it to me because that left me kind of feeling empty. Uh, Angela has refused to watch the end of this film since we saw it in the cinema. I she don't see s- the reason. She steadfastly has never forgiven Joss Whedon for that. I think it wasn't his idea. He's a he's a dick. Yeah, (laughs) I haven't. I come from a different point of view. It's it's absolutely shocking, especially when you see it in the theater. My God, that was a holy shit! That did 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 they just and then you don't have time to dwell on it because you're straight into the action beat. Now, personally, I think you do need it because throughout the entire film. They've talked about this operative is dangerous. The Reavers are dangerous. Being a hero gets people killed. To do the ending to this movie and not have there be any consequences at all would be a television show. And this isn't a television show. It's a film. And certainly in the cinema, the very first time I watched it, the killing of Wash actually made me go, he's going to do the fucking Wild Bunch. He's going to kill them all. And but I genuinely believe that. Way. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I genuinely believe that watching it in the cinema for the first time. I genuinely thought we're not getting a sequel. This is it. He's going to kill them all off. He's going to go out in a black seven blaze of glory. And for that reason alone, the fact that the end of this episodic movie, that it feels suddenly dangerous, that the 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 thing that they're fighting for suddenly feels real, that what they're doing could get them killed. This isn't going to be all tied up in a knot, even though it is, ultimately. Mm. I think that worked, and that wouldn't have worked if he'd not killed somebody off. And he killed off Shepard Book already. Yeah, yes, but... and that's another reason that Wash's death is so affecting, because as a Whedon fan, you're going, well, he's already killed Book, so he's not going to kill anyone else, and then wham! Wash gets it through the chest. You can like it or not like it, but it works dramatically because the rest of that action scene, your heart's in your mouth. Sorry, Blaine, carry on. It's okay. And if you're also watching it for the first time in the theaters, you won't feel how important Book is. And that's something Alan Tudyk noticed when he read the script. So Tudyk, the guy who plays Wash, is the guy who came to Joss Whedon and said, I don't think the audience is going to feel as much tension in this climax as we think they are just because Book died, because the movie-only audience doesn't really know who Book is, and Ron Glass's availability doesn't let them know how important he was. So Tudyk was the one who said, let's kill Wash very suddenly, very abruptly, and make the audience feel nobody is safe, so that when Simon gets shot and River goes to attack the Reavers, you honestly think they are not coming back. When Zoe is clearly broken by Wash's death and standing there and just going to take as many of them down as she can before she dies because she doesn't really want to live through this. No, I got that from the end as well. Zoe's entire mindset comes from Wash's death. I I totally bought that Zoe didn't want to come out of this alive. And that doesn't work if Wash doesn't die. I didn't know Alan. it was Alan Tudyk's idea, though. Excellent. Yeah, he's the one that said, we need this. Right. Joss agreed with his reasoning and said, okay. Joss was actually hesitant to kill them because he was hoping for more Firefly movies and wanted the whole cast back together. And Ron Glass had basically said, no, he's 
only available this much right now. Uh, again, he was working on something else. I heard it was a play rather than a movie, but still, it was Glass who said, no, this is as available as it's going to be. And then he also decided he was pretty much going to move into retirement shortly thereafter. So okay, you know what, that's that's uh, that's all pretty fair. I, I can't argue with your points as far as the dramatic tension that it creates, especially if you're not familiar with the series and you don't know who Shepard Book is really, because if you don't, I think his death is, is really throwaway at that point, if you're not familiar with who he is. Yeah, That's I've just coming a, upon a planet of killed people, basically. Yeah, I've got a friend who was introduced to this whole... Uh, the whole Firefly thing through the movie first, then went back to the TV series, and he was—he thought it was a, a six-member ensemble. When he came in with the movie, he assumed that Simon and River were new characters for the movie, and he thought that Book might be like a recurring secondary character, but he didn't realize he was part of the regular ensemble. Mm-hmm. So those two things both surprised him. Interesting. What do you guys think about the? changing of the origin of the Reavers. You know, because it was always, they had gotten to the end of the world and were driven crazy by it, or the end of the universe, whatever you want to say. Well, and, and, knowing, and now, knowing now Josh it's, Whedon... It's a much more simple drug-induced dementia. Well, I don't... I don't. Uh, I fell asleep before I got to that portion. <laughs> Of the commentary. So I don't know if he had been planning that all along. Have, do you guys have any I- info on that? Because uh, I, I would imagine that that was his long term, that he kind of, the, that they put that out there as their origin, as a red herring, knowing it was actually what he was going to do in the long run. Well, yeah, when they first introduced that origin in the series, it's referred to as a rumor. So being familiar mm-hmm. with Joss Whedon and how much long term planning he does. When they said, well, rumor has it, this is what caused it. As a viewer, the first time I said, okay, we're going to learn that's a lie. So I mm. don't have any insight as to whether or not this was the origin he always had in mind. But I never once believed that the the rumored origin that we hear in this series was going to be the actual one. Right. I suspect that if we got a hold of the pre-filming Bible for the TV series, we would have... Uh, a little bit more insight into the fact that that was not, you know, that he did intend to change it all along. However, I find the original concept that gets debunked by this to be a more heady way of looking at things and more thought-provoking. So I, I, while I don't doubt that it wasn't, you know, a, a last-minute change, I do prefer the original thought as far as how they were created. The Reavers weren't really in the series enough for me to be bothered that they've changed the origin of it. Um, I I wasn't bothered by it, mm. but I just like the original concept better. I think it's more of a fascinating science fiction thought that you'd you'd see something that would be so, you know, your mind is so incapable of taking it all in that it just drives you to total madness. Mm. I find that to be a more interesting concept than, yeah, there was a drug in the air and it just kind of set you off. It's, uh, It's less cliched that people just went to the edge of space and just cracked up but jane has that lovely line in this where he says i've been to the edge of space it's just more space <laughs> then you have to question jane's sanity yes well jane's sanity <laughs> has, has been a, a topic of discussion a lot of times hasn't it um yeah so if, if we go through the film from the beginning is this opening shot in this movie is that all one take 
Uh, I did get that part uh, where they're walking through the ship. There is one cut. I did get that part from the commentary. It's like a four-minute scene with Mal walking through. The only cut is where they go down the stairs because they did not have a two-level set where they do the quick cut to back to Simon, like a quick zip-zip when they go down the stairs. That's where they put in a cut because they had to walk – they had to make them walk down to the other set, which hmm. in reality was all on the same level. So, yeah, right. up and from from the cockpit all the way back to where they're on the stairs, that is one complete shot with no with no edits. Right, because I was watching for that when I watched it this time. And I'll be honest, I didn't spot the cut. I didn't you? either. Even when they told me where it was, I'm just like, OK, sure. <laughs> Yeah, and that's it's one of the computer controlled camera moves. It's like in uh, the 2009 Star Trek when Chekhov realizes that he can do the transporter thing and goes running to do it, and he goes through a couple of hallways. He only had one hallway set, so when the camera's mm. panning, it looks continuous to the viewer, but it's a computer controlled camera move. So they do two identical camera moves, and then when they do the cut, it actually splices from frame to frame. Would in frames that would no- normally look identical. Mm. Well, that was a that was actually viewer. that was actually a steady cam that they had with. Um, I mean, that was you know being carried by by a guy, which I mean it has computer stuff on it, but uh, that wasn't actually a computer controlled like like for the movements. It was actually they had the guy walking with it because uh, we didn't notice. I didn't say his first name. Uh, <laughs> was was saying how well that through all the filming the the guy that did the steady cam only tripped one time and it was when he was walking backwards through one of the scenes that he was so good at the steady cam operation yeah, and they actually mm-hmm. hired a dancer to do it so he could keep up with uh, summer glow in her fight scenes because he had to weave between the people she was fighting <laughs> Right, because the opening is really quite good, even though it's full of moments that, you know, were just shot for the trailer. Let's be bad guys. Yeah, and, well, it's really the establishing shot. It's not just for the trailer. It's for the first-time viewers who don't have the benefit of the TV series. Mm. So it's the getting the band back together moment for the people who've seen the series and the here's who everybody is moment for the new viewers. Mm. For the newbies. Yeah. Well, now, when I go back a little bit before that, before the actual... When we go from the universal shot, the logo, through it into the, you know, the little back history of of them leaving the earth and everything. And then you you're you come to find out you're in a dream sequence or a nightmare sequence. But then uh, that goes into um, the whole introduction of the operative as well. Mm-hmm. Now, when the operative was introduced, I actually thought he was the dude from the last episode of the uh, <laughs> series. That was what I thought at one point too, but then I was like, no, no, because I think I brought that up when we when when we did that one. Oh, really? I didn't remember you doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he did it and then stopped because he didn't want to spoil oh, anything. Oh, for that's you. right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You started to talk about it and then you pulled back on it. Now I, you know, I I only had gotten a fleeting glance at that uh, cartoon trailer that they had put out a couple now, of months back. Do you understand back. why we were freaking out and, about and, it? And actually, I don't recall because I didn't watch it very closely because you were so concerned about that. Uh, was it the fact that Walsh wasn't on it? He was a hologram. Oh, okay. 
And we're like, no! I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, I didn't watch it very closely because you were so adamant that I shouldn't see it at all. And I was just, all I did was kind of look at the type of animation they used. I didn't really look to see mm-hmm. any plot points. Uh, they they recently had a, or I don't know how recent it is, but I just recently saw, uh, they did a uh, an introduction of like the adventures of Indiana Jones animated like that. And you can find that on YouTube and it's pretty cool. Yeah, it was, that was awesome. That was brilliant. That one. Um, Fanto and Min- Minto, is it? Mingi? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't remember the names and I can't tell the difference. I think it was Fanto and Mingo. Something like that. Um, do you think that would have been better if it was Badger? For us, as viewers of the series, it for us, made any yeah, difference. yeah. So I, I think I think shoehorning Badger, and I'm sorry, Bill, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I think, I, but I think shoehorning Badger in might have made it feel like a, a greatest hit show. Mm. You know, and then why don't we get Niska in there too? You know, well, maybe uh, Mark Shepard was busy with Supernatural. Well, yeah, I guess he mean no, he probably wasn't on Supernatural then. It was 2005. Hmm. No, I just, I didn't, I didn't mind Fanti and Mingo, or Mungo, or Jerry, or whatever his name was. Mungo Jerry. Yeah, Mungo Jerry. That's the one. But I did like the line, how can you tell the difference? Mingo's prettier. (laughs) It's funny. It's a a great line. And I, I think it builds itself up really, really well. The only problem I have with it is this is similar to Paul's problem with, with, uh, with Shepard book, I don't think they do enough with Inara. Oh, so no, I, yeah, yeah, I if, agree totally. If you're yeah. watching this as a standalone film, you don't get Malin and Inara's wet, um, relationship. Although you do get that great scene where the rest of the crew are monitoring. <laughs> yeah. And they, they start throwing peanuts at the screen when he won't tell her exactly what it is that he's thinking. That was brilliant. But now, now you, you, you don't get enough of her, and I don't think you feel the chemistry between them that you did in the TV show either. Mm. You don't you don't get the sense that she's so important that, that I really, you know, I think you, you got that in the acting in the TV show, and I'm not sure what exactly it is that they did differently in their scenes together, but I didn't feel that, that connection. And maybe, that's, maybe that was intentional on their part, that they've been apart for a while and... and you know, they have to redevelop it somehow. But I always felt, you know, that they had that very deep feeling and it would be rekindled immediately upon, you know, getting together again. So I, I thought that was one of the, well, it's not, not of, low points of the movie, but just could have been a little stronger. It's well, it's kind of hinted at some of their relationship because when he comes back and he says, oh, it's a trap. And what is it? Kaylee? She's like, well, I don't understand. We're, you know. And it's like, were we fighting? No, trap. <laughs> so there you go. No, it's it's not a matter of the writing there. I thought it was more a matter of the acting. I didn't feel that chemistry between them that I did the first time. I didn't feel that these were two people in love with each other, even though that you know you you would have that sense from the fact that he go, walks willingly into a trap because of her. So writing-wise, I think it's there. I, I don't know if they didn't, if if they kind of paced it a little bit, that they had to rush through the scenes a little bit, that you don't kind of feel it between them, but I just didn't feel it. I don't think until you get to the end, you really get a good scene between the two of them. Because the scene where she come, he come, Mal comes in and he's dressed in the, the funny outfit, 
is interrupted by the operative. And then the rest of the movie, essentially, they're on the run. So they, mm. we don't really get a mal in our scene until the end. And I like that bit at the end where she says, oh, I think I'll stick around. And he's like, oh, good choice. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, I, I know we're a little pressed for time. There's a couple other scenes I just want to bring up. Uh, well, and one character. What did you guys think uh, of the operative overall? I really liked his character. I like, but I like Chiwetel Ephedor anyway. But yeah, I do like the operative. I love how cold he is at the beginning when he talks about falling on the sword and then he, he hits that guy in the back to paralyze him and then just has him fall literally on the sword. This is a good death. Mm. And he's just talking to the nurse as well. Little miss. Just being really casual about the fact this guy's just falling at the side of him to his death. I think Whedon did a really good job directing that. Uh, it was I, really I, tense. I like the fact that that's kind of his, that's his thing. Cause he mm. was doing going to do the same thing to Mal. Yeah, yeah, and, and then you know Mal... we, we get a repeat of that scene effectively, and I, I thought that was very well done. And I thought you really did feel the threat from his character, but he's in in many ways similar to the dude from the last episode. You know, more thoughtful. He's not just a blunt force. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and I, I liked it. If, where, I'm sorry, where's that point? The the blunt force character is Jane. So yes, if someone's going to come in. That's not a good foil to Mel because Mel's used to to doing that with Jane. If you're going to have a blunt voice villain, that's better suited to a TV series where everyone has their moments, and then that's the the character who goes head to head with Jane, not with Mel. I, I agree totally, and I think that's why the operative made a good foil on the on the show. And he wasn't not only was he not a blunt force, he wasn't a force for evil even. You know, he, was, he was he was he more was well a... thought out than that. I, I I don't want to say a force being neutral, but but he was an instrument and he had no feelings on, on the matter. And I think his character grows at the end because after Mal beats him or stuns him and doesn't kill him, but forces him to see what the people he has been working for have actually done that actually changes him. And he it puts him on somewhat of a different path. I at least yeah. I feel. Yeah, it reminded since... me in some ways. This this may be a real real stretch, but it reminded me of some way in some ways of some Captain America comics, where he's facing off against Batrak Zilipa, who's working as a mercenary, but then eventually realizes he's working for a bad cause and says, you know what? As far as the rest of this mission goes, Captain America, you and I will team up, and you know, it, you know, he realizes that it's. It's more than just the mission. Mm-hmm. It's not, I have this mission and I'm going to do it no matter what. Yeah, well, that's what makes the operative work. He's had earlier conversations, like the same conversation where he's saying, we're, you know, we're going to ground, leave them no ground behind. He is, his purpose is to build a better world that he knows he doesn't belong in. He explicitly mm-hmm. states that. And then when he sees the video and it says, yeah, we thought we were going to try to build a better world and make people better, and this is the consequence that's it doesn't just put him on a different path because the people he's working for are bad it's because this is what his stated goal has led to right they were doing exactly mm-hmm. what he was trying to do and lo and behold now we have reavers right yeah because even though he's been fine with killing on a one-to-one basis when it's wholesale and massive he's shocked by that well, yeah, because it's he he sees himself as an instrument. He kills to accomplish his goals 
as necessary. But really only as necessary. I mean, he killed the people that River had been exposed to to prevent word from getting out. I do like the fact that he's the one that says, you don't get it, do you? You had a telepath who was in a room with these guys. What secrets does she have? Key members of Parliament. Yeah. Key. And the guy's like, top Top men. (laughs) Anything else to hit on before we give our final scores on this? I. The other scene I just wanted to t- t- talk about real quick was the whole sneaking past the Reavers was a very tense scene. And then the subsequent very Wolverine dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, we're, we're a zombie. We're a Reaver, too. Don't attack us. And then uh, and, and then tricking them and the whole confrontation between the Alliance fleet and the Reaver fleet and the operative going, you know, somebody shoot. <laughs> Hmm. Somebody, I, I was, anybody shoot. <laughs> I was left with the, you know, like just a little bit of confusion as to how Mal knew he was bringing the Reavers into that situation, you know, exactly. But I went with it. I just rolled with it. Well, I, I thought the plan was always to pick a fight and start shooting at them on the way out just to get them to be chased. Yeah, which is why you mounted the cannon on there. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. We want itty bitty cannon. Boom. So at this point, I guess we have to decide how many of now extinct dinosaurs we're going to give this one. <laughs> extinct washes. Why does Mal not take Serenity out much anymore? It needs a good wash. <laughs> oh, that's bad. How I've Reavers... been waiting 15 episodes to tell that joke. How do Reavers clean their spears? How? They run them through the Walsh. <laughs> I don't love that you deliberately ruined your own punchline. <laughs> yes, I did. All right. With that one, I'm just going to say goodnight, everybody. <laughs> say right, goodnight, Walsh. What, now, what are we we're giving this out of five? Yeah. Okay. Um, see, I liked so many things about it, mm. but it still left me... A little empty at the end. <laughs> Is that because of the death of Wash? Partially because of that. Partially because of uh, the difference in tone, which I really would have liked for it to have been a little closer to the series. And partially because I didn't feel that he really put things among the ensemble cast. I think one of the strengths of the series was the ensemble cast. And he didn't really utilize it quite the way I felt he had the ability to. Right. So... I'm going to say three and a half. Solid, enjoyable. I plan to see it again. I probably will see it again several times. It's not that, it's not that I'm subsequent it. viewings. I'm sorry, what? You think your rating will go up on subsequent viewings? That's very possible. Having seen it once, I'm going three and a half. Right. Okay. Blake? I'm actually going to go four and a half on this one. And okay. I suspect, it, Paul, if you're like me, you will look at it in a more positive light with each subsequent viewing. Because it just... That's very... I, you know what? I don't doubt that for a second, to be honest with you, because I know I did, what, did walk away from it wanting more. And that didn't. that doesn't necessarily mean wanting another sequel, which I would love to have. It means I feel like I need to see it again. And I think yeah. when I get that feeling, it... It usually lends to my opinion rising in the second viewing. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is the limitations of this, and the, the major problems are because it's a movie and not another season of the series. So I'm not going to say it's flawless, but I would have preferred to see, you know, largely the same events play out in the series format rather than the film format. Okay, Bill. Uh, I think I have to go with 4.5 as well. I mean, there was, you know, there's was other episodes of the series that were just completely better. I don't know if it's just because maybe it's a touch of sadness that it's the last one and, and the double death in the show. I mean, in, in the movie, um, but I really liked the operative and, and, and I also would have liked to have seen maybe him again. Uh, but hey, we'll see him with Doctor Strange coming up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's it's going to be four and a half. It's going to be four extinct Tyrannosauruses and a one, little diddy Velociraptor and a little tiny Velociraptor. Okay, fair enough. Um, I'm I'm going for a solid four. Uh, there's two ways of looking at it as the ending to the series. I do think it's satisfying, but there's something missing. But as a film, I think it's quite a solid science fiction movie. And I, I, that's ultimately why I go for a four. It's not as good as the best episodes of the show, but it's by no means a failure. Uh, and I, I would argue it is a film that does improve with repeated viewings. When you know the the upsetting moments are coming you can kind of look past them. Or do what my wife does and close your eyes and go, la, 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 pretend it doesn't happen. Uh, I knew I liked Angela. <laughs> so so once we sign off here, we're going to have a uh, an extra entry in here from Blaine. But for the time being, that's it for us. Uh, I think we may, if we get a decent amount of viewer ma- uh, listener mail, we may come back and just do a follow-up on this and, I may even have watched it a second time at that point and changed my opinion a little bit, so we'll see. Uh, But for now, that's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And, uh, Andy, you can't even do it next time. There is no next time. Unless there is. But goodbye, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. As promised, I am back. I am Blaine Dowler, and I'm covering... Serenity the Shepherd's Tale, the graphic novel published in 2010 that tells the story of the Man We Know as Shepherd book. The outline and final approval on the project were given by Joss Whedon. The script was by his brother Zach Whedon. Art by Chris Somney. Colors by Dave Stewart. Letters by Michael Heisler. Cover art by Steve Morris. Editor Scott Alley. Associate editor Sierra Hahn. And assistant editor Freddie Linz. So as I said, this fills in the story of Shepherd book. We last saw a book on screen in the film Serenity, where he really only had two scenes. In one of them, Mal says he'll have to tell Mal the story of his pre-Shepherd days, and Booker replies, no, I don't. At the time, that felt like Whedon telling fans, you won't get Book's story in the movie, don't expect it ever. And then five years later, this graphic novel came out through Dark Horse. So the spoiler-free version first. The story opens with a scene that takes place moments before his last scene in the film. Then a series of flashbacks guide us through the major events in the previous 44 years of his life. We learn how and when he became a shepherd, and what his life was like before that. Chris Somney's art is very good, although not quite as good as his more recent work. It's not bad, 
but he's grown to be incredible in the intervening years rather than simply the very good as he was here. Zach Whedon writes in the epilogue that this was written in fits and starts, and frankly, it does feel that way. Structurally, this feels like the scenes we'd have gotten in each season of a seven-season series, pulling back the curtain and defying expectations a little bit more each time as we go further back into the man's life. In that context, it works. In the context of a graphic novel like this, telling the scenes in reverse chronological order feels like a gimmick, and the scenes feel somewhat disjointed as they are. So think memento, but with less overarching narrative and no clear reason to tell the story in reverse order in the first place. It doesn't have any kind of framing story that pulls it all together. It just doesn't stand well on its own, and should most certainly not be your first introduction to the verse that Serenity lives in, and not just because of the spoilers. I strongly suspect that you need the contents of the live-action story to make sense of what you're seeing here, and even to care. Fans of the existing properties should seek it out in the context of the information gathered, more so than the content of getting another story, as there is little or no narrative tissue binding the whole thing together. So to wrap up the spoiler-free version of this, I would say that ultimately this is a graphic novel I'd recommend only to fans of Chris Somi's art, or those who want to know the complete backstory of the man we know as Shepard Book. All others can skip it without missing out on much. Now into the spoilers. Final warning. Really. This will just be the linear summary of Book's life for those who want to know but don't want to read the graphic novel. If you plan to read it, stop the podcast now. There's nothing else after it. You're not going to be missing anything. If you prefer an era of mystery around Book and not to know what it is, again, stop now. So, final countdown for those of you driving and still groping for the stop button. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one, spoiler mode engaged, you've been warned. The man we know as Shepherd Book was born Henry Evans. His father was abusive, but much larger than Henry. Henry yearned for the day he would win a fight against his father and learn to fight on the streets, redirecting his justified anger at the wrong people, typically innocent people. He was spotted and drafted by a local chapter of Browncoats, although he wasn't politically motivated to choose one side over the other. He eventually volunteered with the Browncoats to have one of his eyes removed and replaced with a camera, so that he could be recorded by the Alliance under a fake name and act as a perfect mole. To do this, he needed a new identity, so he stole that of immigrant Daryl Book without Book's consent, killing him to get it. He becomes a rising star in the Alliance, orchestrating a series of successful attacks and taking pleasure in torture and interrogation until a risky assault he'd planned goes very wrong and the Alliance suffers heavy losses instead of winning the war in a day. Stripped of his rank and kicked out of the Alliance in disgrace, he became homeless and drifted to the church. He became a shepherd and decided to leave his monastery to spread the word to the outer planets, and that's the journey he had just begun when he encountered the crew of Serenity, the rest we already know. So it would have been nice to see this in context as it develops in the series, because if the information that we learned was learned in this order, then the crew would know that he was a leader in the Alliance long before they knew he was a mole for the brown coats and I could see a lot of dramatic tension that would come out of how Mal and Zoe reacted to that information both times. In any event, thus endeth the spoilers and this episode of the podcast. If you want more episodes of Keep Em Flying, send enough email to keepemflyingpodcast at gmail.com to convince the guys it's worth doing a feedback episode. Andrew here with a few final notes on this, the last episode of Keep Em Flying.
Firstly, a big thank you to Blaine Dowler for guesting and providing commentary on the comics. It was very much appreciated. Scott McGregor also joined us for an episode or two, so thanks to him also. A final huge shout out to my co-hosts Paul Spataro and Bill Robinson, who have become two great friends over the course of the show. Of course, none of this would have happened without original host Sean Engel, the anniversary of whose death is coming up on December 17th. Every episode is for him. We'll close out with this filk version of the theme, The Ballad of Serenity by Escape Key. I hope you enjoy it. And remember, keep flying. When the stars shine bright through the engine's trail And the dust of another world drops behind When my ship is free of the open sky It's a damn good day to my way of mind There's a barren planet you never can leave There's a rocky valley where we lost a war There's a cross once hung round a soldier's neck There's a man's faith died on serenity's floor I stood my ground and I'll fly once more It's the last oath that I ever swore So take my love, take my land Take me where I cannot stand I don't care, I'm still free You can't take the sky from me Take me out into the black Tell them I ain't coming back Burn the land and boil the sea You can't take the sky from me You can't take the sky from me When you see a man and he's standing alone Well, you might just take him for an easy mark And there's many a man has tried his and there's worse than wolves in the borderland dark From the savage men to the government hounds Try to take what's yours and tear you through How about them that run with me has got my back It's a fool, don't know that his family's his crew Don't you tell me what I cannot do Don't you think I've got to run from you Take my love, take my land Take me where I cannot stand I don't care, I'm still free You can't take the sky from me Take me out into the black Tell them I ain't coming back Burn the land and boil the sea You can't take the sky from me Take the sky from me When you've walked my road And you've seen what I've seen Well, you won't go talking about righteous men You'll know damn well why I want to keep to my sky Never cry neath nobody's heel again I've seen torment raked across innocent souls Seen sane men mad and good men die I've been hounded, hated, married, and tricked I've been tortured, cheated, shot, and died You won't see no tears when I say goodbye I still got my family and my fireflies
take my love, take my land, take me where I cannot stand. I don't care, I'm still free. You can't take the sky from me. Take me out into the black. Tell them I ain't coming back. Burn the land and boil the sea. You can't take the sky from me.